Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Chad Velasic. Today, we'll be talking to Nicholas Bauck about his book, A Geography of Digestion, Biotechnology, and the Kellogg Serial Enterprise. This book touches upon a history of the Battle Creek Sanitarium and John Kellogg, specifically Kellogg's connection with the digestive system to material processes and assemblages, such as uh, the urban sewer infrastructure, agricultural production, and the food production within the sanitarium itself. So give me. let's go ahead and um, welcome Nick to our show. Welcome, Nicholas. Hello. Thanks for having me, Chad. Great. So I was wondering if we could begin by uh, you just telling us a bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, well, my, my professional background is in uh, geography. Um, I am uh, discovered geography um, in my undergraduate days at the University of Wisconsin in Madison um, and uh, ended up majoring in geography and in some ways kind of never looked back. Um, I took a, a break from from school and academia for a while, but then um, returned to get a master's degree um, in geography, at which point I got, in, which, which was marked the beginning of my interest in um, food studies. Um, at that time, I was really interested in uh, the, the, some of the legal naming of foods, and particularly in the European Union, where they have these geographical place indicators. Um, so I got really interested in some of the legal history of that, um, uh, geographical naming of foods. Uh, and then, uh, for my, my, um, um, graduate school, school for my PhD, um, I went to UCLA, which has a, which at the time at least had a, um, a, a, weight, a heavily weighted, um, humanistic and cultural and historical geography department, um, which is what I was interested in doing. I was, um, I've always kind of been drawn to um, <clears throat> historical geography and and um, cultural geographic uh, theory as it applies to space and environment and landscape. So uh, at UCLA, I continued that interest in um, food studies, but got um, sort of came across this what I c- conceived of as um, sort of a gap in the way people were talking about um, food geography, and both in terms of um, production, which 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 it was um, um, really heavily influenced by like political economy discussions and um, and political ecology, um, like how how landscapes are made by economies and food growing landscapes, um, <clears throat> but then also within consumption, food consumption studies. Um, uh, uh, they were really focused on um, sort of cultural attributes of um, um, why and how people eat what they do in certain places. And in, in, in neither of those conversations uh, were people explicitly talking about um, digestion or the process of digestion. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Not, um, maybe there's something I could say about uh, digestion and, and uh, as a as a fundamental part of eating, um, 
uh, and how that relates to kind of a food studies or a food geography discussion. So that's how I got into the digestion thing and then kind of fell, fell backwards um, while I was writing my, uh, doing my graduate work and writing my dissertation, kind of fell backwards into the, the Kellogg story um, um, in part because um, uh, John Kellogg, who was the person who ran the, the um, company in its early years, at least, um, was so kind of, a, he was obsessed with a lot of things, but he was obsessed, one of the things he was obsessed with was digestion, and he wrote a lot about it. So it was a good way to start really thinking about, like, um, how does digestion work for this person in this time, or how did he think of it? Um, how did he incorporate it into his medical practice, and then eventually into his um, food production regime? Um, and, and sort of the, the geographical twist, uh, then is, um, um, how do you situate that, um, you know, time con contextual story, uh, into place? What's, what is the, what is the place of where this was happening, which is Battle Creek, Michigan, um, and the, the kind of upper Midwest and Michigan landscapes, how do, how did those play into, the way Kellogg was able to practice his um, health philosophy of kind of digestive reductionism um, and how did it make the growth of this um, type of eating, um, eating cereal in particular, breakfast cereal that, that is now um, ubiquitous in many parts of the world. Um, so that's, a, that's um, a little bit of my background as it relates to this project. Um, um, I can tell you more about my background if you want. I'll let you um, kind of chip in, though, Chen. Yeah, so um, I, th I think we could just go ahead and, uh, and move into the book itself, um, if that's all right with you. Um, so why don't, we, why don't we start actually with talking about uh, John Kellogg's background here, because... Um, the first chapter uh, on the Battle Creek Sanitarium deals a lot with his, his family and, and religious background and into his uh, medical training and eventually um, heading the sanitarium. So could you tell us a bit about, about his trajectory there? Yeah, definitely. Um, so it's, it's important for readers to know that um, as, as a, case study, the book is um, centered on the, the character of um, John Kellogg, who is um, one of two brothers, um, the Kellogg brothers, who kind of ran this cereal business for its first 50 years, basically. Um, they started, uh, well, so John, John Kellogg um, was a doctor, um, and he uh, grew up in Michigan and became a doctor. And, um, as he was becoming a doctor, this, this path toward medicine, uh, this would have been the 1870s when he was doing this. So quite early in terms of like formal, um, medical schools, um, um, and in terms of the, uh, uh, sort of increasing access to, um, uh, things like bacteriology and um, scientific discourse within in medicine. He was kind of in the, the, the 
the earlier edges of that in medical schools. Um, and he, the whole time he was doing this, it was kind of, it was wedded with this relationship he had with the seventh day Adventist church, which had, um, just itself come into being, uh, in the 1860s as, um, a new, um, Protestant denomination, uh, that was based on millennialism. So in other words, a, a impending end of the universe, uh, was, was coming soon. And there is this, um, theology of, um, preparing oneself and one's body for that impending, um, end of the world. Uh, so that's kind of, that's where he came from in terms of, um, like kind of his intellectual milieu and, um, essentially what happened and what I talk about in this chapter is how that, um, that science, uh, that science background kind of, um, was played out in the, in the context of his religious upbringing and his religious benefactors really importantly. So the Battle Creek Sanitarium, this, the place of, um, health that I talk a lot about in this, in this book, um, was started and funded and, founded by this new religious organization, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, um, essentially as a, um, one, as a, um, a architectural manifestation of their theology and their health philosophies, um, health philosophies being things like um, take really good care of your body, don't eat meat, don't drink caffeine, tobacco. They were like kind of these... <laughs> Like for for various reasons, were seemingly ahead of their time um, in the the way we talk about how to be healthy now. Um, they were saying this, you know, in the eighteen sixties and seventies, and um, um, yeah. So they they uh, and then two, the reason for the Battle Creek Sanitarium was that it was their kind of business model. It's how they stayed afloat as a new um, organization. They got people to come and stay at the at the retreat slash clinic slash hospital slash resort um, <laughs> in this kind of idyllic um, woodsy Michigan setting. Uh, and people came from, from all over, mostly the East East coast to kind of take a break, pay them some money, um, go through this health um, regimen to get, make their bodies clean and healthy and ready to go back to the urban urban, um, rat race. Um, <clears throat> so Kellogg, um, was appointed, um, sort of the, the director, um, in starting in 1876 was appointed director of this sanitarium and took on, he, he took it on completely. He just kind of threw himself into it and, uh, did advertising, promoting, um, did his own kinds of research, um, some of which were really wacky. If people know the story of John Kellogg, they know a lot of what he did was really strange. He had like electric beds and light baths and these abdominal punching machines and uh, <laughs> all these these things that we kind of look at now and say that that's like I don't know if I need to do that to <laughs> to be <laughs> to like have a healthy body. Uh, um, yeah, that, that you mentioned like uh, in the book too, uh, the road to Wellville. 
um, the movie, and uh, that's that's how I am familiar with this story at all. I used used to watch that. I don't know why my parents let me, but they I would just watch that movie kind of over and over again. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So I like, and it was interesting in in reading that book and watching the movie again for this when I was doing the research for this book. Um, it was interesting to know, like that you know, it's it's this like you know, imagined fiction, but definitely based in a lot, some reality. Like they're, they're going to take their creative license with making that, that story. Um, uh, but a lot of the things that we, that we find absurd were in fact, definitely documentable things that, that Kellogg uh, did. Um, like the kind of, yeah, the machines in particular. Yeah, yeah, and they they have them. Um, it's interesting. They have them on display at the Battle Creek um, Heritage Center. Um, you can go look at these. They're very mechanical. They're very, they're you know they're trying to be very cutting edge. A lot of them are like electricity based, um, which then was of course a really big deal. Um, <laughs> so you know they're trying to like it's this kind of new gadget gasmo like for better health thing um, that was going on. Um, yeah, so there, there, there's some of that, um, there's a lot of, um, 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 what's, I guess, what's the word, like, conservative, I guess we would say, like, health advice, like, very conservative sexual health advice, um, um, striking even by today's, by today's standards, um, um, but, but one of the things that, that Kellogg was, persistent about throughout his published career at least um the the things that he wrote about consistently was this concern with digestion um and so i'm kind of in that first chapter to get to kind of get back to your question that's um that's what i'm trying to do is set this up as like who's this character who had such an influence where did where did he a little bit of where did he come from what were his intellectual um, precedents, who are the people he was surrounding himself with. So in, in the first chapter, you'll see um, like some of the debates that went on uh, between the spiritual leaders of the church and appointing a director of their, uh, their, you know, their sanitarium wellness center place. Um, uh, and there's, so there's like these, some conflicts that ensued about how that should be operated. Um, and Kellogg kind of found himself uh, at the in the, um, the the diplomatic center of enough of those conversations that he kind of emerged as the person uh, who, who to whom they granted the the keys to the place, and he kept them until his death in the nineteen uh, thirties, I think. Um, uh, he was or he was director until the nineteen thirties, at least. Um, uh, so yeah, that's a little bit of the the background for the first chapter. I think key there is probably, or an, an, another key there, I should say, is um, um, I get I get um, I, I get really interested in um, the geographical notion of place, and as it applies to um, uh, the the sanitarium and its grounds, um, themselves. So, you know, there, there's a, there's a lineage of, um, um, historical geographical writing about, um, how, how place functions, how place acts as like a, um, uh, 
a bundler basically of of different um, social and environmental attributes that that make this this unique thing this um, this the, the the point of which in this book is that for people to experience Kellogg's brand of healing, they had to like get on a train and go to Michigan to go to Battle Creek. Like you had to be in the building, like with the the architecture of the building um, did things um, that allowed his brand of healing to happen. Um, and not least, um, and, or, and also including things like the, the slope of the hill and the soil around um at least this is how they talked about it right um um so they they were very in, in into that notion of, of selling the place as much as they were selling an idea which i think is really interesting um from a um you know from an introductory first chapter sort of hey this is like an interesting geographical story here's why and and so who are they who are they trying to to get out there could you talk a little bit about the the, the people that uh trekked out there to the sanitarium yeah, so these were um, middle upper class. Um, again, mostly people coming from the East Coast, um, urban areas, uh, but also a large group of you know a large constituency would have been from Chicago. Um, and it, it really was it was the it was an um, white up middle upper class, um, mostly moneyed, um, oftentimes um, famous. Um, they had. Um, um, there's a list of famous people, but people like the, the um, Rockefellers, uh, Fords, people like that would um, come here. Um, presidents would come and get their picture taken um, or stay for a couple nights. Um, um, and um, so it was this kind of elitist prestige thing to do. Like, I can take a week off, I can go to Battle Creek um, and stay, be diagnosed by this um, person who seemed, who, who claims to have um, insights on how uh, the body functions in certain ways that are going to make me feel more energized or more um, capable of doing um, my work better. Um, and it's just, it's just interesting, even just saying that it's interesting to put in the, in the, <laughs> In, in the context of how we talk about um, our relationship to like a capitalist economy today, where, you know, it's like, there's all kinds of programs like that. You know, I'm thinking like Esalen in Northern California, for example, it's like this like super special retreat kind of yoga place where you go and um, cure your body and mind and get ready to like reenter as a new person into back into this, um, society that one cannot take on on its own. Um, so I think Kellogg was really, um, you know, he was performing that role as well um, at this time in the late 19th century um, of a kind of, hey, you need a, need, a, need a break, come out here and chill out for a while. <laughs> right. Didn't, didn't he also have um, like a eugenics conference there too? Certainly, yeah, he would. He would have in uh, in later years. That probably would have been in the nineteen teens. Um, he got really into eugenics, um, and but it, it, in it, when you read kind of the the time periodization of the book, um, just just for um, clarity for listeners, is um, 
mostly 1860s through 1900 or so. Um, and But when you read this, because the idea of the book is that it's kind of the backstory of the emergence of the corporation. Um, so the Kellogg Serial Corporation is something that happened um, in, uh, I think it was incorporated in 1913. Um, so, but yeah, yeah, so Kellogg is, is known to history um, as a eugenicist also uh, and should be held um, to critical account for that um, as well. Um, it makes sense when you read the backstory um, how he might have arrived at that, um, at, at hosting a eugenics conference or doing lots of writing about it or whatever he did. Um, in that it, he was just obsessed with the application of science to anything, um, as many as many people in that time period were. Um, um, so it was if you could like scientize it, um, he wanted to be a part of it, and if it had to do with humans and human bodies, he wanted to be a part of it. Um, and so I think I think that comes out in the book of like, oh, here's this like character you you see doing this um as it pertains to digestion and it's not like a hard logical leap in the retrospect of um history like looking at this person in, in his time and place to say that he, he like would have gotten into that stuff right yeah which you talk a bit about um in the first and, and second chapter so in the second chapter um he's particularly taken by germ theory um, and how this relates to digestion. So could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So the, um, yeah, the second chapter um, is more, it's a more kind of uh, deeper dive into the type of science um, he was uh, using um, and adopting to, to um, sell to his patients and to, keep his benefactors happy and all that. Um, and, um, yeah, so he was, uh, he got, he learned about germ theory in medical school in New York and at, and at the Bellevue hospital and then at the university of Michigan in his medical school. And he became, got really into it. Um, and, uh, it comes up frequent early and frequently in his writings about the stomach and about digestion. Um, most notably, there's a nineteen, or sorry, an eighteen ninety six book called The Stomach um, uh, that he wrote, uh, and in that book he he kind of outlines his look to the uh, French bacteriologist um, Charles Bouchard, uh, who had this theory of that was called auto intoxication, and so Bouchard was. Um, observing or, or trying to make the case at least that um, when uh, bacteria sit in the body without movement, uh, it creates um, poison um, or toxins in the body. Um, and so while not untrue in the strictest sense, uh, as we understand it today, um, Bouchard and then Kellogg by sort of, um, adoption, um, took that to a really logical extreme and Kellogg applied it to eating and moving through food through the body. Um, so he was like, he, he was, 
his message, Kellogg's message, at least in 1896, was um, um, food should never stop in your body. Like, we have to eat to stay alive, and that's this, like, unfortunate fact. But I'm going to try to make it so that the food never stops, so that putrefaction and, and toxicity never happen, therefore, in your body, and therefore all these, like, ailments will be cured um, as far as things like headaches and backaches and, um, you know, hysteria. Like, you name it, it was related to how cleanly and efficiently and uh, quickly and... and um, how sterile food food could could be in and move through the digestive system. Um, yeah, so it's really that that Bouchard auto intoxication thing that kicked off um, what the, it set it set a program for Kellogg. It set it set a like um, fifteen to twenty year like plan of action for him, where he was he was um, trying to um, it, figure out. The, the exact right foods that would move the best through the body. Yeah. So in the, um, in this chapter, you also talk about some of the, some of the measurements that he did. Um, and in terms of how he wanted to get this zero bacteria number that somehow he reported, um, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and how that relates to, um, you know, this idea of, of deviance that you also talk about. Mm-hmm. So, um, in relation to that, what, what were some of the, what were some of the measurement, uh, techniques that, that he used? And, um, could you talk a little bit about how, like the, it seems like the, the patients were, were actually pretty, uh, excited to get these reports. Um, and how that led to a very specific kind of uh, diet for them that they that they often right, it was like, they often went against that because <laughs> apparently there's a sub economy <laughs> that you also talk about where they could they can go and and get some meat <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah so I think it's it's part of the attraction and the salesmanship and the I mean in salesmanship in a in a like partly in a huckster sort of way, but partly in a like genuinely, this is what we have to offer you. This is, we think we're doing something interesting sort of way. Um, Part of that message was that like, Hey, if you come here and hang out with us at our sanitarium and pay us this fee, like we're going to like, we're going to give you an objective. And we have a way of giving you an objective answer of what your body's doing. um, And then we can know exactly how to fix it. Um, This was, and this is like uh, that, that's a pretty interesting thing in medicine in the 1890s um, to to make that promise. Um, so um, people ca- would arrive the uh, and say this is again like mid 1890s. They would get off the train. They would go into the the um, sanitarium examination room, and they would have um, uh, they would be examined by uh, to John Kellogg, um, at least the first time he had like a whole staff of nurses and stuff. Um, but he would, they, they fed the new patients, um, a very specific, uh, uh, like test meal usually. And this would have been like, it's grain based stuff. So they gave them like crackers and 
breads and um, maybe some fruits and things like that, um, like dried fruits. Um, and then they would um, have the patient come back, um, like usually later the same day, and they actually inserted a tube down the patient's throat and pumped out <laughs> the, the partially digested food um, and then measured it for things like um, um, acidity, how quickly it was digesting, how much proteins were remaining or, or carbohydrates were remaining in the, the test thing that they gave them. They, they could do this all numerically and um, 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 compare uh, what they knew the, the, or what they thought at least the food started with to what it was as it was partially digested. And they could say like, okay, well, after a few hours, after let's, let's say three exactly hours, um, you've digested um, 36% of our test meal. Um, and there's this high of a hydrochloric acid level. And therefore, um, you know, we deem you, um, he had all these words like you were either hyperpeptic, hypopeptic, um, um, an an anapeptic, um, um, respectively, meaning um, too much acid, not enough acid, or just totally um, something totally going wrong. Um, and there were a number of other categories. Um, and they, they charted these out. Um, they, 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 they would, they had things, they had limits like, um, okay, between five and 8% is, um, hypopeptic between, uh, 62 and 68%, uh, or this level of, um, whatever they're measuring, measuring for, um, is, um, is this sort of, um, um, problem. And so this is the this is the deviation, right? You're you're literally seeing you're you're actually seeing in these charts the lines being drawn and color and they color coded them um, into different types of people. Um, like you are this kind of um, sick person based on where you fall in this chart. You're that kind of sick person based on where you fall in this chart. And that was, I mean, I, I think it's frightening. And yet we still, we do that today with all kinds of things like BMI, body mass index. Um, um, I know like Julie Guthman's written a lot about that. Um, but I, I think about, um, yeah, so how prevalent and freaky that is today, but how comforting that might have actually been um, in the 19th century. Um, to say, oh, like, this is, okay, this is like this, it's like this identity um, thing. And of course, then it's also completely, um, uh, it's, it's, it's creating these bodies, right? It's creating this um, um, ideal body type and reinforcing what it should be. Um, and then, I, I mean, exporting that vision of what a body should be to at a national scale um, when you think about um, why cereal, um, how cereal plays into it and the, the impetus for designing cereal the way they did, it was to get all the bodies into the right square on the chart or into the right cell in the chart. Um, so, yeah, so people would then, they, they would take the results of this test meal and pump their stomach with this tube and 
take it to the lab, do the measurements, and then and then prescribe as if it was like a medicine. They would prescribe um, what people should eat for the remainder of their stay at the sanitarium. Um, and it, again, usually it was very grain-based, nuts, fruits, things like that, vegetables, uh, in varying doses and quantities. And uh, and people would inevitably, you know, get sick of eating all this, like, boring, bland food. And there were all these kind of um, incognito places in town that would serve steaks and cigars and things like that. <laughs> like, so it's it's kind of a funny side story that there was this, like, sub-economy of not gross food. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so thinking about the the cereal in particular, uh, of course, the third chapter is uh, is about this sort of uh, serendipitous events that led to not one but at least two <laughs> contradictory stories about the um, invention. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you know the, the cereal was invented, how. Um, these different stories came about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, So there's, I guess, um, I think when you say stories, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sort of interpreting that as that there was, um, there was kind of a conflict in the creation story. Um, Right. Between William and John. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So these, these two um, Kellogg brothers who, again, who kind of ran the company um, for its, first 50 years um they i mean they didn't have a great relationship um for people who know some of the story will will already know that fact um and it uh so a lot of the sort of different storytelling around the invention of flaked cereal um ended up having to do a lot with um intellectual property um like who who got (laughs) who had the rights to this um, product that was all of a sudden by the 1920s and 30s um, being exported all over the world um, and, uh, and sold as it's extremely popular mass mar- mass produced mass marketed uh, food product. Um, so a lot of the, again, the, the kind of secondary histories or the storytellings of what happened um, and even going back to the, the primary documents like the court, case testimonies and things like that they're just kind of riddled in uncertainty um of exactly what happened but i so i in the in the book i try to kind of um triangulate between secondary histories and the the some of the primary documents and um it's not the most important thing for this book on how it actually happened um so i just try to do my best to, to give kind of the the important details of the story and the important details of the story are that, um, at one point, um, um, it, it, it's a story of John Kellogg trying to figure out which, how to make food, how to engineer foods, um, quite literally how to, um, um, design and engineer foods so that they could do his, uh, so that they could not get trapped in this auto intoxication thing, um, so that they could move through the body really quickly. And he was just having a hard time um, uh, uh, doing that without um, the stomach um, creating what he thought was like too much um, acid or too much bile or too much um, uh, or leaving too much um, 
sugars as byproduct that would go into the bloodstream. Like he didn't want any of that stuff really. Um, so uh, he, uh, through his way of doing these tests, he, he um, was tr- experimenting with different ways of baking breads and grains. And um, a lot of that story kind of stems from the backstory of granola, which is a whole other thing that I talk about um, a little bit in the book. Um, but eventually they leave out this like um, sheet of mashed wheat um, and uh, it dries out uh, and they um, send it, they, they bake it and then crack it. And it turns into what to us would look something like cornflakes. Um, they were made with wheat, importantly enough at the time. Um, um, but they, but, but it's this uh, process of you, you take, you take wheat, you mix it with water, you make this doughy kind of thing, um, and you flatten it out through um, kind of like, again, what we might think of as like pasta rollers um, that they uh, appropriated from another um, kitchen use that they were using them for. And now off the top of my head, I can't remember what that was. Um, but they, they, they essentially took these um, steel rollers, like two foot long steel rollers and rolled this mush through them to create the um, thinness, this thin layer that could be dried out and then kind of cracked like with a hammer after baking it again into flakes. And there was something about like the, the, um, the property of the flake itself that performed the way that Kellogg wanted it to in his chemical lab analyses. Um, it left the right amount of sugar. It, um, it tended to, um, help people not make as much stomach acid when they digested. Um, and so he thought this is great for him. It was this, it was the miracle food, right? It was the thing he was looking for. It put everyone in the right cell in his chart. Um, uh, and, um, um, or it put enough people, um, or it was, or at the very least it was a, it was a thing that he could, um, talk about and sell. Um, so that that's the controversy. The the controversy. The different stories are basically like, well, who left out the wheat? Who put it through the rollers? Who who mashed it? Who broke the chunks off with a hammer? Uh, <laughs> and so for me, I I don't really care about that for for this book, um, but I do want to represent it um, as accurately as possible, and in part because it's just it's also important to the uh, cultural history of the Seventh Day Adventist. Uh, church so uh, you know i want to at least do respect to that um yeah yeah and then in this chapter you also talk about the role of john's wife ella specifically in the kitchen and, and you also make this um connection here between you know place and making of cuisine you know cuisine versus kitchen um some of these important differences so so could you talk a little bit about uh, Ella's role and, and uh, as well as like the role of the kitchen um, in, in terms of Kellogg's sanitarium and, and science. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they ran, they ran an experiment kitchen, um, which is where a lot of this, including the cornflakes story that I just told, which is where a lot of that happened. Um, and um, not uh, at, at 
some point in, it was, I want to say 1893, um, his, John Kellogg's wife, Ella, uh, became the director of that experiment kitchen. And so she got really, I mean, she bought in to what John Kellogg was trying to do. She was a huge supporter. And, um, but she kind of took a, took her own way too, um, with the running of the kitchen itself. So she would, um, you know, it was kind of, it was this very hierarchical thing with John Kellogg at the top. So he would say like, we need this thing to happen. And then she would like try to figure out how to, um, um, bake, you know, he'd say, say like, we need, um, wheat mixed with corn, um, baked for three days or something like really ridiculous, um, and add a little bit of, of like tomatoes to it or something <laughs> like, and then that'll be our, um, our bread snack for the patients tomorrow. And then she would like figure out how to make that all happen. Um, and, uh, yes, but she was really into this notion of the, um, the making of a cuisine, which is what they were doing, essentially. They were making their own cuisine um, as um, a very place-rooted thing. Um, and not to say, like, oh, this is happening in Michigan. In terms of uh, what I mean instead is um, this is a place-rooted thing in terms of um, it, it has to happen in this kitchen. Like, I'm going to set up this kitchen such that the types of things that we need to make are easier to make. Um, like we have to have a certain kind of oven that gets to a certain temperature. We have to have like baking trays. We have to have like uh, places to roll out doughs and places to dry fruits and vegetables and places to um, blend beans and things like that. Um, so all, this whole like implementation is um, it's the geographical um, sort of moment of doing a um, cuisine. Um, uh, it's not just like people here eat this kind of, in this country, eat this kind of food. It's like, um, it, it's more like the Italian cucina or a, a number of languages have this, um, where the um, German, Portuguese, where they, the, the word for cuisine is the same word for kitchen. Um, and so I was just kind of making that observation in the book that um, it's misleading in a way in English that we have this separate words for those two things. Um, you know, one derived from, from Latin, one der derived from German, um, kitchen and cuisine. Um, it, it's interesting that we make that distinction so predominantly in English because it kind of hides um, the fact that you need the geographical place-based kitchen component in order to realize the cuisine. Absolutely. So, so the kitchen and, and the tools within it are part of this extended digestive system uh, landscape, as, as you put it. So um, thinking about that, another, another sort of system or, or um, object here was the development of the uh, sewer systems, uh, which Kellogg played some role in. Um, so what was his role uh, in this and, and why was it so important for him and, and uh, his sanitarium? Yeah. And it kind of gets into, um, you know, the core of the book too, just, just to flag for listeners too, um, that the geography of digestion here is really that 
is is really making the argument that John Kellogg's version of digestion um, could not have happened without these very material, very spatial connections to other um, technologies and landscapes in in southern Michigan at the time. And so, so as you said, the 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 sewer system of the town uh, <laughs> is a really important part of Kellogg being able to practice a sterile digestion. You know, he, this was the he was in charge of the sanitarium when the city of Battle Creek went from outhouses and privies um, um, to a, a centralized water carriage sewer system. Um, and it's not uncommon that that would happen in this time and time period in the United States. Um, but what is really striking is that um, while he was um, sort of refiguring what he called the modern stomach at his sanitarium, he was also for a decade served on the board of the Michigan State Board of Health um, as a, a, a member and got really involved in the um, design and implementation of uh, the sewer system in towns throughout Michigan. Uh, including, of course, in Battle Creek. So he, you know, his his he pro- he never put it this way that I saw in any of the writings that he did. Um, but he was by his actions and by his practice actually um, performing this kind of urban infrastructure, the, the the making of the underground urban landscape of Battle Creek as an extension of what he was doing to the to the more visceral, more fleshy tubes inside of people's bodies. Um, they were, they, he, he was kind of connecting those two tube systems in a way, if you want to think about it like really graphically or visually. Um, one being um, iron and the other being uh, flesh, inside flesh, inside people's digestive systems. Uh, and again, that was, it, it all made sense to him and, and it, there, there is a logic to it. Um, when you get into his, his rationale, at least, um, uh, that it, it's like, well, if, if we want to stop, um, if we want to stop stagnation, in other words, if you want food to keep moving through the body, then we should also stop stagnation, um, in, uh, like the human waste, um, privies and outhouses um that should have a flow to it as well and indeed um it's like (laughs) it's it's interesting and fun to kind of imagine like okay so he was actually connecting like his philosophy was going from bodies to the kalamazoo river to lake michigan to the st lawrence seaway to the atlantic ocean um you know, he was like kind of doing that flow, whether he wrote about it that way or not. Yeah, that's really interesting that he has this already this, yeah, extensive landscape uh, that, you know, now we're talking about. But then certainly, it, you know, as far as I know, no one else was, was talking about it in that way. Um, so the other part of it, too, being the. Um, nearby agriculture that he also had a, a role in um, that that affected the sanitarium and, and this landscape of, uh, of digestion. So what, what was so important about um, the changes to to agriculture at this time and, and how did it relate to Kellogg? Yeah, so yeah, and this is, you're pointing toward kind of the fifth and, and last main chapter of the book. Um, 
um, uh, which, yes, is about the agricultural um, hinterlands in southern Michigan that that supplied the um, what became to be the mass amounts of um, wheat and then eventually corn um, that that supplied all of their health food products, not least uh, cereal, of course. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so the agriculture part again, and it's the book. If you've kind of been following along, you you may have noticed that there's this kind of um, um, scalar um, transect. Like you start the conversation of the book uh, very much um, in the stomach and the the scientific health philosophy, and then you go out to um, the the food lab, and then you go out again to the city, and now we're going out the furthest amount to the. Uh, they're the, the farthest distance we're going out to, uh, like the farmlands and as far away as maybe uh, other states and things like that. Um, so we're really bringing the digestive system out away from its from its um, human body, at least. Um, and uh, yeah, so the agriculture thing, um, it's interesting for a, a couple reasons. One was the the introduction of um, uh, or the intensification of um, me- mechanic mechanical um, agriculture, mechanized agriculture, um, was a huge part of um, uh, dis- you know that that was a discourse at the time among farmers and among um, city and, and state governments and agriculture experiment stations and um, people were really interested in. How do you pl- um, apply these notions of um, uh, um, increased efficient soil utility or um, soil fertility? Um, how do you you know get the most out of your soils? How do you how can you manage more and more acres? Um, and it all taps into the the, the globalizing. Uh, it's part of the conversation of the globalizing economy of agriculture, where. Um, you were, you know, you were on this um, what uh, a, a scholar named Michael Goodman called the technological um, uh, treadmill, and talked about that in terms of agriculture, where you just have to keep um, applying more and more inputs to fields um, to make them grow more and more. Um, in this case, wheat and corn, um, and uh, uh, so Kellogg. Kellogg's connection to that is the simple observation that a they were a huge consumer of these grains and so um, were benefiting from cheap and easy access to to mass market their food products um, uh, and b they were connected in a very sort of poetic geographical sense in that one of the major actually sorry two of the major um, manufacturers of large-scale mechanized agricultural implements, um, Advanced Thresher Company and Nichols and Shepherd Farm Machinery Company, um, were both based in Battle Creek. So down the road from, <laughs> from the health sanitarium, you had the, the, the wrought iron factories that were pumping out thousands of threshers and, and combines and um, harvesting machines they were exported all over the country, really, but mostly the Midwest, but all over the country um, um, so that um, farmers could um, kind of 
um, take part in their or participate in this um, what, what we now now know as the death of the family farm and the rise of um, industrial agriculture. So the health food was um, um, uh, a reaction against um, sort of a local <laughs> a local organic farm, and and Kellogg wanted to replace that ecology and that ecosystem with this large scale sterile um, <clears throat> type of of agriculture that promised, at least for him, and he, the promise that he made was that. Um, it would, it would, um, that, that food was better for you basically. And I think that's a really interesting point, um, that I kind of came across in doing this research is that, um, while, while, um, our, our sort of national consciousness reaction, um, against industrial agricultural agriculture these days is that we should react against it and do something different, um, which, um, I believe we should, um, but it comes from sort of the same spirit that Kellogg was coming from in that, in that spirit is there's something terribly wrong with our food system and we need to do something different. You know, Kellogg was saying that and he did went towards industrial agriculture. We're saying that now going against <laughs> industrial agriculture. So it's just like a neat, it's a neat his, kind of historical reminder to just be careful of like, um, 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 the, the precedent for your your kind of rationale or, or the way you're uh, thinking about um, food systems. Yeah, in the in the epilogue, you you say something along the lines of biodiversity of the gut is a political move. So I was wondering if you could speak on that and and really just how you know besides what you just spoke about um, how this story relates to today's ideas around, around health and, and um, food production and things like this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So the, the politics of the book and I, I tend just my style and my personality is that I'm, I'm, um, I'm not heavy handed with the politics, but there, but there is a strong politics to the book really, which is that, um, that, um, we should not think of human health as something confined to the body inside the skin as we know it. Human health is um, always and inextricably entwined with the landscapes that surround us that we look at. And we can use those landscapes, in fact, to read the health of human bodies. And that's what I'm trying to do really in this book is um, give a little like methodological um, practice for how we could, might actually do that. Well, how do you read into someone's body by looking at a landscape? Uh, and that's really, even though the Kellogg story is the case study, the sort of methodological practice move is to do exactly that. And to me, that's, that's the political move too, is that, um, like, hey, let's pay attention. When we have conversations about public health and um, or individual health, like people like with cancer, like let's talk about let's talk about on a on a large scale or over a population scale at least. At least let's talk about the landscapes where people live first, um, um, or in addition to the like individual cancerous body because they're 
they're on, they have to be tied together. Well, Nicholas, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I just wanted to wrap up with our traditional last question here. Um, what, what project are you working on now? What's next for you? Yeah, great question. Um, so after um, I wrote this book, um, I actually did a whole a whole um, other project that was very different um, that was based um, in the American desert Southwest. Um, it's a, it's a project about the um, uh, visual history of the Grand Canyon, actually in Arizona. <laughs> and um, that project is also finished. It's called Enchanting the Desert. Um, but my what I'm working on now is is related very much to that Southwest Desert um, theme. Um, I'm doing some work um, with some historical documents uh, in the Mojave Desert in uh, Southern California, bet- uh, the desert between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Um, That's where I'm oh, from. No way. Great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we'll have to talk about that then. Um, uh, and um, doing some, uh, again, looking at some historical documents um, from the USGS about that region. Um, but interestingly enough, um, um, I'm, have, I'm, I'm really interested in something that came up in the geography of digestion book was this, this notion of how do you do, do, how do you translate these concepts in geography and in STS and in history of science, um, like network, um, like landscape, like, um, like, like space, um, and there, there are many theorizations of how these things work. And one of the things over the past five or six years that I've really noticed and gotten um, really into <laughs> is what are, the, uh, what are the visual articulations of some of those ideas? So often they appear in um, textual form. Um, and um, I'm really interested in how you take something like, like this concept of network um, specifically as it's applied in geographical theory building um, and visualize it um, with the aim of um, then further strengthening the way we're using our spatial metaphors, things like spatial metaphor being something like network. Uh, But there's also other metaphors like hybridity or verticality. Um, There's lots of things floating around, again, like geography, STS, um, environmental humanities. There's a lot of these spatial metaphors that are going um, unvisually examined. And so um, actually this fall I'm beginning, um, uh, I'm, I'm retooling actually, I'm going back to school and beginning a Master of Fine Arts program uh, at the University of Minnesota uh, where I'll be exploring exactly those themes and making um, some visualizations um, based on, on the geographic um, theory that I know and like so much. Well, that sounds really interesting. I, I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you. This has been great to talk with you, Chad. Absolutely. So, yeah, we've been talking to Nicholas Bouch about uh, a geography of digestion, biotechnology, and the Kellogg Serial Enterprise by UC Press. Uh, thank you for being on the show today, Nicholas. Thank you. Really a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Uh, take care. <laughs>